Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned into my television show, Gruen, during the week. Uh, we had our best uh, result for an episode audience-wise since 2016. It was the ABC's biggest night on a Wednesday in a decade, apart from one Wednesday in 2014, which was New Year's Eve. So a lot of people were tuning in on that Wednesday, but thank you so much to the incredible audience that tuned in to watch uh, Gruen on the ABC, and of course you can catch that on ABC iView if you haven't had a look at it yet. Uh, we had experience doing the show without a live studio audience for the first time in the 12 years we've done the show, and in the first time in 19 years I've been making shows out of that same studio at the ABC, so we'll get used to that as the series goes on, but uh, thank you so much to everybody uh, who tuned in, supported the show, who've been telling people about the show, who've been introducing new people to the show, um, yeah. It's uh, just really fantastic and cool. So thank you very much. And speaking of the ABC, uh, Kirsten Drysdale, who is today's guest, is doing a show with last week's guest, Zoe Norton Lodge, uh, on the ABC. It is called Reputation Rehab. And if you like Gruen, you are going to love this show. Basically, they are looking at people who've had their reputations destroyed and uh, how they can rehabilitate themselves, whether they deserve those things and... Uh, what they can do to rebuild their reputation. And Kirsten talks a little bit about that in this episode, plus some incredible stories from her life as well. If you like this podcast and you want to support it coming out weekly, the best place to go to is patreon.com slash philosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash philosophy. We are looking to get to $5,000 per month. At which stage, if we can keep that consistent there for a month, we will know we will have enough money to do not only a new episode that comes out for Patreon, sub, Patreon subscribers ad-free on a Sunday, uh, but we'll also uh, have a regular episode that comes out on a Friday or Thursday for Patreon subscribers. So uh, we are getting very close to that. So if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to do it. But uh, without any further ado, let's get into today's episode. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Kirsten Drysdale. <laughs> Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the show starts. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you? Uh, hi, I'm Kirsten Drysdale. Do I... Hi, Kirsten Drysdale. I would like more <laughs> than that, by the way. You want more? Oh, okay. Well, I'm a journalist, a writer, a TV presenter and podcast guest. <laughs> oh, you are. Yes. Oh, you've added that to the CV, podcast <laughs> yeah, guest. Yeah, yeah. I've got to get new business cards done. <laughs> a podcast guest. So uh, let's start with what you've been working on that we're, I'm in the process of giving your brand new television show a bit of a plug. So a couple ah, yes. of weeks ago, when people have heard this, they would have heard uh, Zoe, your co-host already on the show, uh, because you both have a new television program that will start, I am imagining when this episode comes out, it's going to be this Wednesday night. So the coming Wednesday night at sort of 9.05 on the ABC, uh, your brand new show. So let's start with that. Talk to me about, tell people what the show is, 
you know, what it's about and why you are interested in this topic. Okay. So our new show, it's very exciting. It's called Reputation Rehab. And basically it's yeah, myself and Zoe Norton Lodge, my co-host, and we find reputations in distress and uh, help those people or groups or topics find uh, uh, re- re- restore themselves in the eyes of the public. So this is all kinds of um, people who have been caught up in an outrage or have been the subject of some kind of controversy or, you know, maybe they have made a mistake, but we feel that the response to that mistake or the back clash that they've received is disproportionate. So um, we think they're, uh, you know, have been unfairly tarnished and we want to give them a little helping hand. And so is this a position you naturally have yourself when you look at our current day, you know, public accountability structure, let's say, um, uh, you know, do you feel like it is out of balance at the moment? Can you see the yeah, pros and cons of the idea of this, you know, kind of ruthless public accountability cycle we're now in? Yeah, it does feel a lot of the time like it is just out of proportion. And I think part of it is it's like just the volume of noise that comes back at you thanks to the media environment we're in now. So maybe somebody did make a mistake that does deserve a bit of criticism, but maybe they didn't make a mistake that deserves three million people criticising them all at once in all caps, you know? <laughs> like, um, and, it, and it kind of feels like the, the lesser the crime, sometimes the more the volume of rage that comes at them and then the really, really big, actually important things that people do wrong just kind of slide by and don't cop the same level of vitriol. I mean, sometimes it, sometimes the balance is right, but sometimes we feel it's not. So what do you think that is? You know, now having worked on this show for a while and had time to envelop yourself in that world, meet the people who shame and the people who've been shamed and sort of understand the psychology, you know, that goes along with it all, what is your sense of why sometimes it is so disproportional? I think there's a bit of... We live in this world now where everyone feels like they have to have an opinion on everything and they need to let everybody else know their opinion on everything. So um, I really don't want to use the term virtue signalling because I think it's the kind of thing that Miranda Devine likes to <laughs> likes to use against people who she perceives as being too woke. But I think there is a bit of a like... Something happens and everybody just feels compelled to to go onto Twitter or to go onto Facebook or to go somewhere and see, someone's trying to tell you right now, Will, that you've done something wrong. <laughs> I should have like paid attention to the social yeah. dilemma and actually if I can turn off my phone and realize that <laughs> I I'm just, just wanna... a I am just a junkie to the yeah. information attention society that we live in. Exactly. And so you just meet you're just met with this like overwhelming onslaught sort of of the world's innermost thoughts which 10 or 15 years ago you didn't have to be exposed to because they remained where they should in our minds um i i think about this a lot because i was on twitter uh when it first started which was like around 2009 or 2008 something like that and in those early years it was like this really cool place where basically people just shared links they were like oh have you seen this interesting article about how centipedes mate um 
great like you know and that's and that's what it was for a while and then it morphed into something else and it went from how to centipedes mate to the human centipede very yeah. quickly twitter yeah 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 that's exactly the evolution the devolution <laughs> that it took um and it was actually a friend of mine lewis hobber who is now one of the triple j hosts who i was at a party and we were just talking about how ugly twitter had become and at the time i i was still one of those people who felt compelled to tweet like something's happened my god I must type what I think about this and he just was like you know you don't have to tweet hey I was like what he's like you know you don't you don't have to tweet it's just noise you're just adding to the noise it's noise pollution and you are part of it and I was like it was the most epic light bulb moment for me I was like fuck wow you're right you don't have to tweet you actually don't. No one is forcing you to. And it's very, very liberating when you realise you don't have to be a part of that. I think about it a lot in regard to, because the balance you're talking about, you know, the idea of virtue signalling, and I understand why you hesitate to use that term as like a derogatory thing, because it can be, you know, used by those who don't want any progress in our society or people to exactly. reach down and look after others. Of course, you know what? It's good to be virtuous. And I don't mind that if you are being genuinely virtuous, if you are signalling that a bit, because sometimes virtues need to be signalled. And often it is those things that, you know, perhaps uh, are not, you know, those who have fallen through the safety net in our society have the least access to mass media and, you know, mass audiences. And so the idea of, you know, giving a boost to that charity that you helped out or, you know, uh, sharing that petition about, you know, Indigenous rights, it's the the virtue that you're signalling is actually a justifiable thing to be signaling it's a good thing for you to be doing but i do often ask myself that question when i'm on twitter is like does my contribution to this make it better and that seems to be a pretty good rule if i think okay by sharing this thing it actually makes it better it gives it a wider audience that it would ordinarily have it is a good thing to be sharing it makes it better but there are so many other things where i go yeah i could dip my toe in here but i'm not going to make anything better by my contribution <laughs> i totally agree will and it's like i would make a distinction there because i think you're right i think yeah platforming a great charity or a great cause is a different thing to me to just saying how angry you are at someone for some perceived you know slight that they've done or something wrong that they've done and telling the world how angry you are about it and how wrong they are and what a bad person that that doesn't help anything or anyone but sharing a cause does so I would draw a distinction there what do you think because you see a lot of people that you know to be good people Uh, people if you sat down with them in a conversation they would readily admit to a myriad of their own flaws and how complex it is to be a human being and how life is incredibly challenging and difficult and you know incomprehensible to both them and to everybody else and yet when they get in that environment of twitter or you know one of those social media things that rewards a black and white opinion they become people who hunt like you said, in such black and white terms. And I imagine this is what is really at the heart of the show, is that many of these people who hunt in a pack 
individually would be the first to confess that they have a myriad of flaws themselves. Yeah, 100%. And it's like I see friends of mine on Twitter who I know are awesome people. In real life, they are awesome people. And I see their online behaviour and I just think... If I didn't know you in real life, I would think you were the biggest fucking wanker. Sorry, do you, you, like I and and that's just it's so terrible because it's like it it's everybody's worst foot forward in that environment. And I really like I think about this a lot, and I I have I kind of think it's like road rage, right? Where when you are driving, you are encased in this big square box of metal and you can't see the other people on the road's faces. So when someone, you know, is is riding up, you know, so close to your tailgate that they're like a hemorrhoid or whatever, you're getting really, really mad about it in a way that you wouldn't if you were in a supermarket and somebody was walking too close to you with a trolley because in the supermarket environment you are able to look at each other and have that human moment of seeing each other's faces saying oh sorry mate didn't realize you were there oh no worries you're right and you just go past each other and it's a normal thing when you're in a car that there's a barrier there and that is the online environment it is like it's like road rage but it's twitter rage or whatever does that make sense? That it sounded... makes absolute sense. Does that make sense. sense? Because, like, in public, I am, and I think a lot of people also are, instinctively apologetic. Like, if I am yeah. in a supermarket and somebody cuts me off, I'm always like, sorry, mate. Even though, not my fault at all, but your immediate in- instinct is to just be like, sorry, mate, we got in yes. each other's road. Yes. We're both saying sorry to each other. We're in this little sorry off now. And yet you yeah. put yourself, like you said, in your car... And then suddenly it's Mad Max Fury Road and it's everybody for themselves. Totally. And most people, I really truly do think, most people are decent, polite, want to do the right thing, aren't aggressive assholes, but it's just something about the environment uh, online and certain platforms, you know, it's to varying degrees on different platforms. But, yeah, it just, it just like I said, brings out the worst. Uh, have you ever publicly shamed somebody? Have you actually been a shamer yourself? Do you know what? I reckon I have. Not for a long time. But I I actually, when we started set out to do this show, I was thinking, should I delete my Twitter history in case there's something like way back in 2014 where I'm doing what I'm now sort of trying to highlight and accuse other people of doing? But um I tried to scroll back my timeline and it just was too hard. So I I can't tell you. I'm sure I have because I'm sure I got swept up in that around 2013, 2014. Um, And then I thought, you know what, I'm not going to delete it. I should own, I should cop that if I was guilty of it and someone points it out to me, I should be like, yeah, you're right. I did this and I'm trying not to anymore. So that's very interesting. That's interesting to me because I like that idea of um, – uh, so my other podcast, Tofop, it comes up a little bit. But we always say to people, listen to the new episodes, work your way backwards. We've been doing it for over a decade. Podcasting used to be a thing that felt like a very, you know, late night secret society pirate radio thing and the conversations were in that tone. Just – Go backwards yep. until you feel uncomfortable with the conversations, then stop listening. We are different people now. <laughs> you can hear the evolution over the 10 years of the podcast. And we've had debates at different times about maybe taking down some of those early episodes. And the thing that we always land on is, no, 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 no. If you, here is a journey. 
You see a journey of people 10 years ago thinking it's okay to use this word or joke about this particular topic. And then you get to hear those people wrestle with, you know, changing their thoughts around that, what they think is funny, you know, growing up, reconciling with past mistakes. And I think that that is more important than just erasing those things completely. And that's why my, I do have, I understand the idea it's been something that's been in the news quite a lot lately is going back over old episodes of comedy programs and you know not showing or erasing episodes of programs where you know the material in them is now considered by modern day standards problematic and i i understand that certainly to a certain degree you know the these are hurtful things for people to see particularly without a warning you know if they just happen to turn on the tv and then suddenly something that is you know, consi- you know very offensive is suddenly there i i get all that i i do genuinely understand that but i fear i guess my downside to that is not that it's political correctness gone mad you can't say anything anymore because i think it is a better place that we don't say those things anymore i just worry yeah that by erasing what we used to do, we pretend it never happened. I completely agree. Do you, are you talking about stuff like people going, oh my God, I was rewatching Friends. Friends. It's so... <laughs> Good example. <laughs> like, everyone seems to be rewatching Friends and talking about how problematic Friends is. And I'm like, okay, first of all, it was never funny. <laughs> no, that's personal taste, personal taste. But like, I, I hate it because I'm like, it's a product of its time. At the time this stuff was acceptable, yeah. isn't it great that you can look at it now and be shocked by the fact that, oh, my God, 10 years ago, or how, how old is France? Well, older than that. Like, we thought this was okay. It's not okay. And to me, yeah, I, I think that is better than criticising criticizing something based on norms of now that was made in a different time. I think... What you've said about friends is is such a great example because I think that's almost your perfect example. Yeah, rather than your faulty towers or these things from a long time yeah, ago, I yeah, think friends yeah. is a really good example because it is in the last twenty years. You know, you're talking about a time capsule of the last twenty years of our lives, and instead of going, this show is problematic, the argument actually should be, no, this show was the most popular comedy show in the entire world, and twenty yes. fifteen years ago, these were jokes that were very acceptable nobody was having a problem i mean i'm sure the victims of the jokes even at that time had a problem with them they just didn't have a a voice in mainstream society to be able to express that and then go well isn't it great that we've changed so much and be challenged by the idea that it was it wasn't 40 years ago that that joke was acceptable it was 15 years ago that joke was acceptable yeah it's funny will because i'm sitting here in this um cupboard at cjz and i'm sitting right in front of the hungry beast tapes and that's Mm. where my career in TV began and it's just reminded me of something we did on Hungry Beast so that's 10 years ago uh, which was it was called the post-race rap and it was like a satirical kind of rap rap song idea that we were now past racism and everything was okay and it included some lyrics that you probably wouldn't want to say today. Mm-hmm. And even the concept of it now, we're like, oh, wow, we really thought we were post-race in 2009 or 2010. And a few years ago, um, some of the people from the show, and look, I should say, this is easy for me to talk about because I actually, it was, I wasn't in it at all. So it, it didn't kind of, I, I kind of have no skin in the game in a sense. But um, basically all of the Hungry Bee stuff was up on the internet and people decided we should take that one down. Um, 
And so we did. And I always felt a little uncomfortable about that because I just thought, for, for, for the reasons that we've been we've been saying, like we did that at the time and we all thought we were really progressive and at the time it was okay. And now, wow, look how much we've learned. It's actually not. And it doesn't make any of us bad people. That's the thing. I think people feel like criticism of of the cultural products make them bad people and it's it's not cultural products are a product of an entire society in a moment they're not a reflection of you as an individual and your moral uh rectitude you know i'm rambling again when you're making a show about like you know people whose reputations have been you know destroyed in one way or another and yeah. the concept of the show is a rehabilitation of that reputation <laughs> Uh, how do you then, I mean, there's so many complexities then to how you actually execute that idea because firstly, you've got to reconcile yourself with which aspects of, and in, in a way that's going to be a personal opinion, which aspects of what they have done are justifiably been shamed or called to account and which have been disproportionately, right? Yeah. So actually I'm uh, working on an episode right now, which I think is a really good example of that. So one of our episodes is about Todd Carney and mm. the bubbler incident. Yes. Now, Todd Carney, he's a, for anyone who doesn't uh, know or remember, he's an NRL player. He was a really, really star player, but he had a bit of a rap sheet of off-field indiscretions, as mm. <laughs> so many do. But the thing that actually ended his career was a photograph someone had taken of him in a men's urinal pretending to piss in his own mouth. Mm. Um that was what got him fired after years earlier he'd done lots of drunk drink driving, he'd taken the cops on a chase through Canberra, he'd, you know, vandalism, all this other stuff. For us, we're not interested in uh, excusing or rehabilitating those other crimes. What we are purely and solely focusing on is the bubbler incident because we think if you look at that, that happened in 2014. If that happened today, I think we would look at it differently because... He was shamed for that. He was called disgusting. He was called, you know, all a grub, all of this stuff. Someone took a photo of him and leaked it to the internet without his consent. We have different ideas about what that means now to what we did at the time. And he is actually a victim in that scenario, if you think about it. Um, and I would, I, I would argue just on a, you know, another note, of all the things that a rugby league player could do off the field to get in trouble... Like, pissing in one's own mouth is a victimless crime. Like, even if he is pissing in his own mouth, you are the only person who is being hurt by that. Precisely. And that's why it's so staggering to look at and go, wow, this ended his career? Look at what just... Did you see the news on the weekend about Sam... Bur oh, we maybe bleep yeah. his name, but, like, there's another player who has just been exposed as doing way, way, way worse things than this. I mean, there's lots of other players who are still out there on the paddock who have been convicted of assault, who have sexually assaulted people, who have bashed people. Those are crimes with victims. If rugby, if rugby league could get through an entire season where the only uh, thing a player's dick got them in trouble with was self, like self-harm, you know, that, that's fine. You can, yes. you can do whatever yes. you want. Look, here's our new rule. You can do whatever you want with your dick as long as you're only waving it at yourself. <laughs> you can point it at yourself as much as you like. Just don't point it at anyone Correct. else. That's where the trouble really starts. <laughs> 
that should be that like, should be just like a rule on all of their contracts is yeah po- only point your dick at yourself and you will be fine um yeah so yeah so that's one where we're just focusing on trying to reframe that that incident and so then when you're making these things about real people because i know and i spoke to zoe about the fact that nick kyrgios obviously has had you know at least some involvement yes. in his episode like when you're doing an yep. episode about todd carney and you want to rehab the idea that you know the the bubbling incident this famous incident do you get todd carney involved in this we do. We do. We did. So we uh, we had a chat. We interviewed Todd for the show. And um, it was after the interview with Todd that we came up with the idea of how to rehabilitate the bubbler incident. Um, and uh, without giving too much away, basically we discovered that an actual PhD academic had written a peer-reviewed paper that was published in an international journal about Todd Carney and the bubbler incident. And so we... Which which we just found hilarious in and of itself. That, that, that a footballer pretending to piss in his own mouth has become fodder for some kind of PhD scholar. Um, but we used some of his paper to give us the idea of how to how to reframe that incident. So we then called Todd back and we were like, hey, we've had this idea. Here, meet meet Joseph Brennan, Dr. Joseph Brennan, the scholar who wrote about you. Um, this is our idea. What do you think? So he's, he's in on that. Um, and particularly with him and that incident, we, we wouldn't have wanted to do something without his, his consent because consent is a whole kind of theme that we're exploring in that, in that episode. Um, there are, however, other people who we're looking at throughout the series who we couldn't entice to uh, an interview or to be a part of, and we're going to help them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So in this situation where you're making a show about the idea, you know, you're also trying to, you know, express some of this comedically, right? Like it's an entertainment show, you know? And so how do you then, because of course so much of comedy can rely on that oppositional shame or disproportionate, you know, kind of response to something. So how do you balance the idea that you're doing one thing, but also in your execution, you know, still make that entertaining? It's actually, that's actually one of the hardest things to do with the show because precisely because we're talking about shame, even bringing up some of this stuff risks re-shaming someone. Mm -hmm. So, um... We, I mean, a lot of it we do, it's, it's, it's really all about tone and um, style and just making sure that the jokes we're making aren't at the expense of the person who has already uh, been the butt of jokes. Um, and I guess, so, you know, f- for the Todd Carney thing, obviously we have to set the story up. So obviously we have to show the image, like recount all of the horrible things that were said about him, all of the headlines, all of that. But we hope that by the time you get to the end of the episode, you will see the whole thing differently and you will you will have sympathy and empathy for that person. You won't feel like shaming them. I don't know if you've seen the Clinton documentary, The Clinton Affair, 
Um, it's a like seven part doco that's been on SBS recently, but Monica Lewinsky features in it a lot. She did hours and hours and hours of interviews. And I feel like that's a really good model for, you know, obviously they have to rake over all of the horrible stuff that happened to her. But you come out the other end of watching that series just thinking she is the most amazing person ever for having gone through that and the way she has dealt with it and speaks about it now when it was, again, one of those things. 20 years ago, all the late night hosts were making jokes about Monica Lewinsky. And if that had happened today, she wouldn't be the butt of the jokes. Bill Clinton would be. Um, So they managed to pull that off without reshaming her. And I think it's just all about, um, you know, the overall story you're trying to tell, even if there are jokes for us along the way. I know you're not an expert and I'm not asking you to speak as an expert in this situation, but more just I'm interested in your personal observation of this. Do you Have you got a sense of what the best way to respond to a public incident like this is? Because I'm sure you've seen various different ways that people have responded at the time, whether it's appropriate. Would it be better for Todd Carney immediately in that situation when that comes out to be, to you know go on all the shows and talk about it immediately? Is it a better strategy for him to be funny about it? Is it a better strategy to shut it all down and walk away from the internet and ignore it for six months so you don't have to see anything? Have you got any sense of how you should react to some incident like that? I think it depends a little bit on the incident. I think sometimes, I reckon if you genuinely have done something wrong, and I don't think Todd Carney had in that instance, but if you have, I think you should apologise pretty quickly and then lay low. Say nothing. Let everyone have their peace, let everyone get angry and then let them get over it and then, you know, everyone will move on. I think if because if you should apologise for something and don't, it's not going to let up until you do. And then when you do, it's probably going to feel insincere. It's going to feel a bit like you've been dragged kicking and screaming to this position. Um, if it's a confected outrage, and I, I've been the victim of this myself. So I had a... Should I, do you want to talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, okay, all right. Because we almost we almost talked about this on the show, but then we, we didn't end up going into it. Um so in about in 2014, I went and did a brief and, as it turned out, ill-fated stint on 7:30. <laughs> so, oh fuck, this is genuinely traumatic for me to recount. Well, I, you've come um, to the right place. This is really what people tune in for a philosophy episode. There's got to be one uh, moment where the person is like, "Ah, oh, I can't believe that I am now talking about this." So let's let's talk. Okay, about it. okay, because my strategy for this was to lay low. Okay, so I um, got you know went on this short-term contract at seven thirty, and I was really excited because I'm a journalist as well. So I've done a lot of really straightforward reporting, and I thought here's my chance to to have a go at some just you know just straight up current affairs reporting. But they all they wanted me to do some more fun stuff, um, and you know bring a bit of bring a bit of comedy to uh, to our seven thirty. So this one day what happened was do you remember remember Tony Abbott threatened famously to shirt front Vladimir Putin if he ever saw him he was gonna shirt front him. 
I do. I remember that uh, of all the things that Tony Abbott did, it, uh, it, they do tend to blur into one. But I will say I do remember him famously deciding he was going to shirt front Vladimir Putin. And I believe then Putin might have come to Australia with like 10 submarines or something like that, which was more than the entire Australian Navy had. So I think yeah. that Putin might have called Tony Abbott's bluff in that situation. He he totally did because he Tony Abbott had his opportunity to shirt front Vladimir Putin when they met at the G20 summit. Mm-hmm. And we had all this B-roll footage uh, in the newsroom of the, all the world leaders gathering together in this big conference hall. And if you watch... Tony Abbott studiously avoids Vladimir Putin. Anytime he comes close to him, he takes like a five metre berth. Like he was just really avoiding him, quite the opposite of shirt fronting him. And it was really funny footage. So they were like, oh, you know, it's really funny. We think we could play it at the end of the show. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, like I can see this working. So I had like eight hours to put something together. So we put together this little package over the B-roll with like a kind of like a boxing commentator, like commentating Tony Abbott's complete failure to land a punch at all on Vladimir Putin. Can I just say now, it was not very good. It was not very funny. It it was extremely meh, right? This This sketch, if you can call it that. So it goes to air. It kind of receives a bit of a lacklustre response. Nobody's particularly uh, impressed, but nor is anyone particularly offended until the next day when all the right-wing columnists in the country start pointing at this as an example of, like, ABC fuckery. And I'm like, okay, I was like, oh, oh, shit, this is going to this is going to become an outrage. And it did because it was a perfect storm, right? Because it had happened like at a time where there was big culture war and there was all this debate over funding to the ABC. So I remember like one of the lines that was written about it was Miranda Devine wrote that I, Kirsten Drysdale, 7.30's newest recruit, was dancing on the graves of dead Australians. And I'm like, what? And so this whole thing became, the story became that 7.30 had run a skit like, joking about all the people who died in the MH17 crash. And I'm like, that's definitely not what that was about. That is the most uncharitable reading of it possibly you could possibly have. But day after day after day of this coverage. So I lay low thinking it would blow over in like 24 hours or 48 hours. And it didn't. It just went on. I got Thursday's columns, Friday's columns, the weekend papers. Monday rolled around. It was on. Malcolm Turnbull was on Q&A. So it got brought up on Q&A. But that was because it was just fodder for the culture war, you know. And I do still think, so going back to your original point about what should you do in these situations, I still think laying low was the right thing for me to do because anything I could have said was just going to add oxygen, was just going to, like, set off another round of coverage. If I tweeted anything, that would be, you know, reason for another article. And I didn't feel I had anything to apologise for other than making a not very funny sketch because I wasn't joking about dead Australians at all. Um, so I didn't want to apologise because that wouldn't have felt sincere either. Um, yeah, so sometimes you, sometimes I think you just have to realise that you're the victim of other forces. And unfortunately, that was, <laughs> I, was, I was just ammo for all of the anti-ABC brigade. Mm-hmm. 
It's uh, yes, I've been in that situation many times over <laughs> my lifetime. The first time that ever happened to me, I was at Triple J. Uh, the reason that they now don't uh, do live interactions with the news reports on Triple J and haven't done for nearly 20 years is because of this specific incident because we used to interact with every story and make jokes and have a really good time with the newsreader. And that all ended one day when there was a report by uh, Richard Alston, the communications minister, who said that the ABC was biased against the government. That was uh, what the newsreader at the time said. And I said, oh, come on. He's only saying that because he's a right-wing pig rooter, which is an excellent joke to this day. It's a, it, The headlines about the ABC being biased, I'm on the ABC being over-the-top, blatantly biased. That is, again, to this day, I will 100% stand by that that is a very funny, good satirical joke. But I, like... There was threats of having me suspended from work. It became a front page story for a week, you know, because they was like, like you know, Triple J host calls, you know, you know ABC, like you know, right wing pig rooter. It was emblemic of the ABC being anti government, etc., which it never was, but it was amazing to me a good life lesson at you know 25 or 26 that sometimes you have absolutely no control over you know, the narrative once it leaves your mouth. Isn't that so frustrating, though, when you just want to be like, guys, that's the joke. That's the joke. Well, I I mean, I admit I'm bad at apologising. I think I'm better these days, like, because genuinely I understand the idea if I've done something wrong, make a genuine apology. But I'm not going to fucking apologise properly for something that I don't believe that I've done wrong. So I remember at the time, literally, they said, you've got to do an apology. And I was like, I do apologise to any pigs I may have offended. <laughs> of course, he's not rooting pigs. Pigs have higher standards. So, you know, really just, it was like when Shannon Noll like threatened to fight me and I said, can't we do something that we're both not good at, like singing? <laughs> I, I'm not very good sometimes at offering a, a sincere apology to things that I don't feel I've done wrong. But um, look, this show just sounds fa- fa- so fascinating. I am... You know, absolutely rapt to see it. And I think that that experience you've had personally probably gives you a level of insight, you know, and empathy into the subject matter itself. Did you feel alone when it happened to you or did you feel like you had a good support network around you? Because often I think one of the things that can be so scary when somebody has had one of these incidents is that nobody else wants to line up next to them or at least publicly hold their hand and say, hey, I think this was okay because they realise they're going to get dragged into it as well. Yeah, I um, I was lucky. I did have a lot of really good people around me. I was working with a lot of the Chaser guys at the time and obviously they are very, very familiar with this sort of a situation. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had plenty of people checking in on me. I remember... It was funny, like, the first 24 hours weren't so bad. I was like, oh, great, this is a thing. Oh, it'll be fine. It was, like, the second and third day when I got really down and had to, like, turn my phone off and unplug my computer and just sat in my room drinking whiskey for a day because that was when I realised it had kind of caught fire and taken on a life of its own and I now had no control and I was like oh, this really sucks but yes I, I it was great to have people and I you're right though people will send you lots of DMs mm. to say 
oh, hey, mate, hang in there thinking of you. Like, even people you don't know. Like, I was getting messages from people I'd never met before being like, oh, you know, hang in there, you're right. But no one wants to do it publicly. (laughs) No one wants to, yeah, no one wants to have your back publicly. But I would say to, like, if you see other people who are in this situation, it really does mean a lot if you reach out, even if it is privately. It does help. Uh, do you have a life philosophy? That is the general uh, conceit of this show. And so I'd like to ask people at some stage during the interview if you have a life philosophy. Do you have one? So I knew you were going to ask this and I hate that I don't, but I have a few sort of little guiding rules, some of which are more more serious than others. I mean, one of them is just never tweet as per <laughs> the discussion we've just been having. Just never tweet. Um, another one is uh, don't don't buy into bullshit. And it's and I actually mean that for your own bullshit. Don't bullshit yourself about what you're doing. Because I think we all have a great capacity to lie to ourselves about what's motivating us or or and I think it's really really important to try to be your own best or worst critic however you want to look at it um but also just not to be bullshitted by other people just just try to be on the lookout for that um how's your bullshit detector because I really love this one this is great I I think that don't buy into bullshit is a really good philosophy I would say in, in general in life, like from top to bottom, you know, it, it, it speaks to the very heart of so much of what we are as human beings, but we live in an age where it's never been more difficult to differentiate what is bullshit and what is not bullshit. So I wanted to ask you, how do you feel like your bullshit detector is, both personally but also when you look out on the world? I like to think... I've got a pretty good bullshit detector. But I reckon probably everyone thinks they have a good bullshit mm. detector. So maybe I don't. <laughs> maybe mine's really defective. <laughs> but um, um, but no, but like even in my personal life, I hate being bullshitted. So if, if, if someone calls, if you, you know, if a friend of yours is running late and they call you and give you some lie about why they're running late, I'm like, mate, I know you're lying. Just tell me. Like... <laughs> You're hungover and you slept through your alarm and that's why you're late. I would so much rather be told that than, oh, my cat escaped and I have to try and find it or whatever. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I I much prefer if somebody just rang me and said, you know what, I just woke up and I didn't feel like it. Is that cool? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I wake up and don't feel like it some days. That is a perfectly acceptable answer. 100% want that answer. Like nothing pisses me off more than being lied to and like in a really blatant way. I'm like, how? Because it's offensive. Because it's like, do you think I'm really dumb that I can't? see that you're lying (laughs) I'm meant to be your friend I'm smarter than this yeah what are you most likely to bullshit yourself about you talk about that idea of self bullshit and I think that this current time has certainly been a revelation for me for you know peeling back some of the layers of you know my own bullshit that I didn't even know that I constructed so what about yourself what are you most likely to bullshit yourself about I reckon it's about like whether I've worked hard enough on something. So um, 
you know, like you can tell yourself, oh, yeah, you know, like I did a solid eight hours today. And then if you actually think really long and hard about it, you can be like, no, I didn't because I took an hour off at lunchtime when I went and did this. And then I spoke to my sister for 40 minutes on FaceTime. And then I, you know, whatever it was that I did. And I'm like, "Uh, that's probably really like three hours worth of work if you're actually being really honest with yourself. Because you have to be so disciplined if you're working from home in as so many people are at the moment. So I think that's something that's really easy to bullshit yourself about. Uh, What about in a general sense, society-wise? Obviously, one of the things that we've, you know, seen happen, you know, and your perspective as like a satirist, but also as a journalist, this idea that journalism used to be, you know, at least at its very principle about that idea of, you know, cutting through the bullshit, finding, you know, the objective truth rather than a subjective truth, you know, keeping the bastards honest. That's what journalism was meant to be about. And yet we live in this world where, you know, there's never been, you know, fake news is obviously the buzzword, but disinformation and misinformation is so prevalent. And we're seeing the uh, repercussions of that, you know, through Corona, through the anti-vaxxing movement, through, you know, what's happening in America at the moment. So, What do you think about, you know, the current state of world bullshit, I guess? It's woeful. (laughs) Woeful. Um, We, okay, so something I think everyone, and I try to do this myself, I think everyone needs to try really hard not to just um, believe headlines that, uh, uh, you know, support their own preconceived notions. So um, I'm just trying to think of... An example, like if you're uh, someone who's really into natural health cures or whatever, and you see a headline about um, gargling salt water will cure coronavirus, which was something that I saw doing the rounds early on in the pandemic, even from people who were like nurses were sharing this stuff. I think you just need to... Okay, it would be very nice if salt water could cure coronavirus and it would be a nice non-big pharma solution to this pandemic. However, maybe interrogate that a little bit more closely um, and, it, you know, you might want that to be true, but it might not be. Do you think there is a comeback from where we are now? Because it feels like there is a rapid escalation of disinformation because it's been weaponized and it's been commercialized. And it's often very hard once that has happened to go back in the other direction. What are your uh, thoughts about where we are and where we're going? Is there going to be a natural correction or are we on just a like, you know, continual high-speed hellscape from now on? I think, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I do think it will get better. I think we need to get to a point where everyone realises how much crap they've been fed and actually what I think will happen is mastheads or... Um, Certain news providers or certain um, media organisations or individuals will uh, gain a reputation for trustworthiness and they will earn that reputation and we will then pivot, hopefully, this is my hopeful future predictions, and we will start to look to those trusted sources of information again for news instead of just old mate recording on his iPhone in the, in his backyard and giving you an update on something. What about in a practical sense? Because I, I often get this sort of feedback from people when they 
they say, how can I do better? I want to be a better consumer of information, but what should I be doing? Do you have a process yourself for how you go, this is good information and this is bad information, how you differentiate between the two? Um, I always go to primary sources when I read, uh, particularly, this was something I particularly did on the checkout, funnily enough, um, because so many of the stories I ended up doing on the checkout were sort of sciencey stories. And science is one of the worst reported things in the media. And a study would come out And it would get some huge headline like, you know, drinking cold coffee cures cancer. And I would go and find the original scientific paper and actually read that paper and then go, oh, no, that's definitely not what that paper said at all. It was like (laughs) that was that was a pilot study with 12 people who, you know, (laughs) they all drank cold coffee and nobody got cancer. That is not the conclusion you can draw from that. So um, I go to primary. I would say go to primary source as much as you can and I would also say that as much of a bad rap as the media gets a lot of the bigger news organizations generally do have better and more rigorous fact-checking procedures than Joe Blow on the internet does so um, you know science is an interesting area in science reporting because of course like a lot of science reporting is is boring and therefore the you know like you said the couple of cups of coffee will you know cure your cancer becomes the headline out of these science stories and so a lot of the reporting we see around science in the mainstream media is always about you know how many glasses of wine you can have according to a new study or you know you know if you tickle your foot for five minutes a day you know you're going to live an extra 20 years or whatever some research study has found when they were studying like feathers and the relationship between toes or something you know like that's and there is I, i i do feel and it's not the major contributing factor but i do feel that it is part of the reason that people don't trust legitimate science reporting is that so much of the pop science reporting is things that we hear are true and then never come to fruition. So there is an inbuilt, uh, you know, in people's... Okay, oh, yeah, but scientists are already always saying things that aren't true as opposed to the fact that, no, they're not. It's just being reported in really terrible ways. So speak to me a little bit about the gap between what science is doing. As someone who's read these reports, sat down with them, the communication gap between the good work that science is doing but the general distrust that science seems to have with some parts of the population. Yeah, so, okay, science is lots and... Okay, let's just keep... Let's just stick with the does drinking cold coffee cure cancer idea. Great. To to work out whether that is true or not, many, 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 many studies need to be done. And then you do a meta-analysis of the results of those studies. And then maybe once, you know, once a hundred studies have been done on this, we can draw some kind of conclusion about the likeliness of whether or not drinking cold coffee causes cancer, cures cancer, or cures or causes it for that matter. So you you can't actually make that make that we've got some bad news guys yeah, so... we did another study yeah. and everyone in it is dead we may have hang on sorry we did that at... sorry everyone the, oh, the chart was upside down this has been i'm so sorry we should not have reported this is that. the one thing we didn't want to have happen um <laughs> so so the problem with okay the gap between the science and the media reporting is this. The scientists, they are not ready to draw a conclusion until they have their hundred studies done. 
the journalists want to report on the outcome of every single one of those studies. So study number one with 12 people says, yeah, it cures cancer. Study number two with 15 people says, wait, no, it doesn't. Study number three, you know, so so that's why you get this kind of yo-yoing of the headlines about this is good, no, wait, this is bad, no, wait, this is good, instead of because they need content, they need to feed the beast. So instead of having the patience to wait until we have a body of evidence that we can actually draw some some, some conclusions from, um, you know, yeah, they, they just report as it goes. And this is, this is why cli- getting into fights with climate change deniers is such a fruitless exercise because they will produce study after study after study that shows oh, the glaciers aren't melting and polar bears are rooting more than ever and look at all the babies and, like, th- what what they're actually not doing is stepping back and looking at the weight of the overall body of evidence, which is what the IPCC does, which is what, you know, all good, respectable scientific authorities do, um, and they're just cherry-picking the ones that suit their agenda. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it play out in real time with the search for a vaccine, obviously, totally. for COVID-19. You know, you're seeing very early studies being reported as massive breakthroughs. And part of it, of course, is not just the media's thirst for there to be a breakthrough around COVID-19 and a vaccine, but also the idea that there are competing uh, industries looking for this vaccine and they all need, you know, a whole bunch of funding and those who are having more promising results are more likely to get the majority of the funding and the support in those situations. So there is an imperative because of the scientific financial model as well that if you can have some positive early results, then you can have a lot more money to do your future studies. Yeah, exactly. So there's all kinds of vested interests at play, Um and, and, you know, we're all, we're all desperate for good news. So we kind of want to see a headline that says, vaccine, good news, on its way. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I tend to think if, if, you're, if you want to know the truth about a particular scientific question, go to one of the authorities that has considered the overall weight of the evidence. I mostly just asked Dr. Carl because I assume he's across. Oh, totally. It, right? That's fine. That actually, yeah. that's just call. Just get on a Triple J. Call Dr. Carl. He'll clear it up. Do you know what? That would be my break your never tweet rule because he responds to every <laughs> random fucking Twitter question he gets asked. He actually replies to like. <laughs> Why is the moon yellow tonight? <laughs> you talked about this idea of um, uh, never tweet. That's rule number one. Uh, don't believe you know, bullshit. That's yep. you know, philosophy number two. I like both of these, but I, I got the impression there was still more to come. So is there more to come? Oh, there's one more. Yeah, one more is um, it's more of like a question I ask myself when... I feel passionate about something that I want to communicate, usually through my work or or even to other people, is do you want to be righteous or do you want to be effective? Mm-hmm. Because there are different ways to, conv- to persuade people. And I don't think getting on your high horse about an issue is the best way to bring someone around to it. So even though it can feel good, and I, I mean, I say this as someone who's really guilty of it, like I particularly rant and rave about things to my family and I should actually you know what's that what's that saying you catch more flies with honey like I should try to try to speak to people on their own level or find a way to get through to people which doesn't seem luxury and 
you might have a better chance of convincing them of your position on an issue. I Yeah, I, I love all these. I think these are all really fantastic. And maybe I love them because they're also, you know, things that I agree with that's a good reason to love them <laughs> you know like, really, we all love to be told really we're right I love how you're saying things that I also think <laughs> some reason it makes yes. me think you're really smart <laughs> actually I have another rule which is to be suspicious of people who do that to you because <laughs> they're playing you Will they're playing you so I like anyone who's like too complimentary to me I'm like mm, something something's not right <laughs> but I, I do I, I, I do like this a lot and I think it probably speaks to the style of entertainment that you're making and the style of journalism that you make there is an element of not just I, I find often you know it, it can be very exclusionary both comedy and journalism can be very exclusionary very preachy to the choir and you know if you are genuinely interested in changing someone's mind Instead of just, you know, to go back to the Miranda Divine that we started with, signalling the virtue of your argument, then I think that you do approach topics in a different way. So has that been something that you, I mean, like you said, you started really in journalism. Was it like, was it, was your dream to be just like a, a proper old school journalist? Did you come to, you know, using humour and satire early in that journalistic journey or did it come later on? It came, look, it probably came later on. I never thought I would be on camera for a start. So I started out as like a researcher and a producer and um, uh, fell into a presenting role uh when I was on Hungry Beast, which was my first TV job. Um, And then I guess through the people I was working with at Hungry Beast, I was introduced to more sort of satirical and comedic ways of presenting information and I loved it. Um, But it wasn't something I had much experience in. You know, I I was never a drama kid at school. I was never a theatre kid. Like, I played sport. I I played professional hockey before I came into television. Um, So it was something I really had to learn from my colleagues. And and I do think it is often a more effective way of of communicating things to an audience or persuading them of, of a point of view. Um, do you mind if we just have a two-minute break? I just uh, no, have go a for barking it. dog outside. I need to deal with it. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Go, go. I'll have a drink. My uh, dog has uh, developed a habit of slipping through the fence and um, uh, we have horses in the paddock and she loves, like, rolling around in horse poo, so... Um, <laughs> I just heard her do a little sneaky patter patter past my office, and I was just like, "I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna cut that off before that becomes her third bath this week." <laughs> I totally understand. I I grew up on a farm in North Queensland, just out of Mackay, and our dogs like they loved nothing more than rolling around in afterbirth. Like, so when mm. one of the cows had had a baby, that was just like heaven for them, or eating the shit from a young calf, which my father had the most disgusting term for. He called it farm toffee because it's like, because it's like really, you know, when they had colostrum milk and the poo is like fluoro yellow and it's like really like thick and tacky and the dogs would eat it and it would like stick to their teeth. And um, 
yeah, you don't want them in the house after that. So, so um, let's talk about uh, where you grew up on the because I think this is really interesting. So, North Queensland, right? Or Mackay? Where's Mackay? Is it North? Well, Mackay. I mean, this is debatable. Yeah. It's like southern North Queensland. It's probably central Queensland. central Queensland. It's a little further. Yeah, it's further north than Rockhampton. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. what was life? in Mackay like you talk about a farm what sort of farm are we talking beef it was Was yeah 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 cattle but it was like it it wasn't a particularly expansive enterprise it was somewhere it it was more than a hobby farm but not like a station so a couple hundred acres with um about 80 head of cattle which was I suppose more a lifestyle choice than I don't think we ever got rich out of it put it that way um, but yeah, no, it meant we grew up uh, running around, having heaps of space, um, swimming in the creek uh, until the day that we woke up to a photograph of an eight metre crocodile on the front page of the newspaper that had been spotted in Sandy Creek, the creek that we had been swimming in for years on our farm. So yeah, we stopped swimming in it after that. I'm interested in the idea of, uh, because often like, you know, the style of entertainment that you make the style of entertainment that Mm -hmm. I make you know can get categorized as being some sort of like inner city you know lefty you know like your latte sipping chardonnay socialist style entertainment and I've always find that quite hilarious because I'm from like a dairy farm in a place that has 250 people and I'm sure my parents have never voted anything but national in my life you're from like a you know, a cattle farm in, you know, central Queensland, this idea that you're unrepresentative of what it means to be Australian just because the ABC don't make the shows out of the ABC and Mackay, <laughs> you know, you have to go yeah. move to Sydney to go and make those things. But how much has that background informed your worldview, do you think? I think quite a lot probably because I, you know, you feel instinctively a bit defensive of people from where you're from who get kind of cast as like rednecks or bogans or whatever and don't get me wrong a lot of them are me included not not a redneck I hope but I've certainly got bogan qualities um and like I yeah when I when I started out in a lot of the shows I've worked on um I'm probably one of only two people on the team who you know didn't grow up in Sydney and didn't go to uni of Sydney and um yeah yeah so I feel like a a bit of an outsider sometimes um and I think I think what I think one of the things it's given me is the perspective that sometimes people express themselves in rougher ways than they actually are are as people and so a lot of my friends um from Mackay like a lot of the people who've stayed there and have gone on to work in the mines or you know do central Queensland stuff um express themselves in ways which would uh and everything from like accent to the words they use to the way they look um would see them just immediately prejudged as redneck bogans and that's what I feel defensive about because I just feel like just because they look different to everybody from inner city Sydney doesn't mean that they are you know racist homophobic um you know 
national party supporting whatevers. Um, certainly some are, but... <laughs> and also that the opposite can entirely be true also. Oh, yes. That, that you know, so often those things, racism, sexism, homophobia, can be hidden behind you know, the veil of, you know, proper speaking and, you know, good manners. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I I actually got married up there on my, on my parents' property and it was such a great day because it brought together those two worlds for me. So it brought together a lot of my um, media friends from Sydney flew all the way up there to be at the wedding and a lot of my friends from high school who I'm still friendly with came to the wedding and these two worlds collided and it was it was just great because they were the kinds of people who don't normally interact. Um, but I think, I hope they had a good time together um, and it was nice for them to see... Uh, to, to see those different worlds. Uh, you talk about family, you have children, and I uh, talked to Zoe um, on her episode, um, you know, obviously about the fact that she had, you know, incredibly traumatic births, you know, during the, you know, production of your show and pre-production of your show. And it's, it, it's, I mean, it's funny that we even need to note this, but you're more aware of it than anybody is the fact that the idea that a show that is being presented by two women that is creatively behind the scenes also women is still quite a talking point it is still unusual enough disgracefully so but unusual enough that you know these are newer conversations for us to be having and suddenly you know the idea of balancing you know family and children and making these sort of television programs is front of mind particularly on a show like yours and quite dramatically it turned out on a on a show like yours so can you talk to me a little bit about you know your experience as well yeah for sure um so I went into labor during a meeting on the first day of pre-production <laughs> So we were, I was a Zoom meeting um, and I was at home in Newcastle because I was only like a week or two off my due date and I was having contractions and eventually I was like, guys, I think I'm going to have to <laughs> gonna have to bail pretty – I just wanted to say this, this and this um, and I, I'm going to have to go because I think I'm in, in labour. And I was and I had a baby that night. Um, <laughs> so – Look, I would like to. Th- I I would like to think that even men on that call would have been understanding, and but it was nice that they were <laughs> that they that they were all all women. And, and, no, bloody cross your legs. This is yeah. a bloody meeting. Hold it in. Hi, why you can't hire women, mate? They're bloody gonna yeah. have a baby at the first Zoom meeting. Because I hadn't said anything, and as soon as I was like, ah. Oh, Guys, I think I'm having contractions. They were like, go, 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 get off. What are you doing? Go. And I was like, oh, but just before I go, I just wanted to say this. Um, no, so they were really, really, really great and really understanding. And so um, off I went, had a baby. So for most of the six weeks of pre-production, um, yeah, I was sort of out of action with him. Um, and then we started filming when he was six weeks because I was like, well, he he has to have his vaccinations. You know, the first round is at six weeks before I um, come down to Sydney in a pandemic with a newborn baby to film a TV show. <laughs> like, um, so I think because everyone, because it was an all-female team, everyone was extremely understanding and accommodating. And actually that's it. I'm... 
all the men involved were great as well. I feel like I'm giving the guys involved a bad rap. And I think that men in general have become so much better at accommodating family and babies and trying to get that balance right for everyone. But, um, yeah, I would. we would be shooting and my baby would be back in the dressing room with a, a friend who was watching him and I'd have to race down, like, undo my top, like, get the mic out the road, breastfeed, <laughs> get it all done up again, hope that, that nothing had leaked, um, <laughs> race back onto the set. I've got, like, in the mornings, because Wilbur, my baby, was always ready for a feed, right when it was time for me to get my hair and makeup done. So our makeup artist, she was so amazing. She would just like, she would be blow drying my hair, wearing a mask while I had one tit out with a baby on it, like (laughs) in the the mirror. um, uh, Yeah, it was, it was pretty hectic. Um, can, can I talk about the hockey? Because this is fascinating to me. Because yeah. when I was at university, I never really had much experience of hockey. We didn't really play hockey at my school, you know, when we were growing up. And it's not, you know, it was one of those sports, certainly in my childhood, that you would be super interested in come the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games because it turns out Australia was pretty good at hockey. So it was like a sport that you could definitely get behind. But otherwise, it seemed to be completely off the radar. And then I went off to university and one of my good friends when I was at university was quite a uh, top level hockey player in Canberra happened to be a deaf guy as well and you know had managed to play at the top level of you know hockey there in Canberra and so I used to then go and and watch him play and and you know watch his games and, and got quite fascinated by the sport but what was your like how does is like hockey a big sport in Mackay it was weirdly it was and I I I just started playing hockey because my parents put me on a hockey field when I was five and that was it. Like, I don't remember getting interested in it and asking them if I could play. They just decided that I was going to play hockey. Um, And and I did. And then I... um, are you, are you wanting to talk about the rep stuff or oh, the... I would like to talk about it. I, I'm fascinated yeah, by yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I played it, loved it, kind of started to get okay at it um I made uh my first Queensland team when I was in under 13s and then I sort of continued to make Queensland rep teams all sort of all the way through my schooling years and then when I was 21 I think was my first year I was um I got into the Queensland Scorchers, which is like the national, the national, believe it or not, we have an NHL, <laughs> National Hockey League, <laughs> and um, and the Scorchers were the Queensland team. So, yeah, I played for them for, uh, I think it was about five years, and it was just, so at the, at the time that I got onto Hungry Beast was also at the time when I was sort of becoming what they called a fringe national squad player. So I'd sort of gone over to the AIS, the AIS for hockeys in Perth and I'd done some training camps there and it was a bit of a like, it was a bit of a sliding doors moment for me. Like, was I going to try and pursue this sporting career or was I going to take this incredible, amazing opportunity to work for Andrew Denton in Sydney on television? And I think I made the right right choice, really, because um, at that stage, you know, playing hockey cost you money. It didn't make you money. All of the Australian players, the women at least, were all working full time jobs as well as training for the Olympics. And um, you know, it was it's one of those things that a single injury can just 
end it for you forever and then what do you have to fall back on? Um, whereas TV has provided heaps and heaps and heaps of Nothing other opportunities. Nothing but stable employment television. Yeah. Nothing but stable, stress-free. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, did you give the sport up completely? I'm very interested in, like, did you do you still play or do you – is it one of those things that when you play at that level and then you can no longer play at that level that you don't want to play? No, I play now. I gave it up for about five years when I first moved to Sydney and was working on – a hungry beast and then I do you you might not know this I worked on Gruen with you well not with you but I worked on a couple of seasons of Gruen in between seasons of Hungry Beast don't I think give they people were just the impression that I don't know who's working on the shows that I work on <laughs> I, I know that because I looked at your Wikipedia page and it's oh, there think... and I was like ah oh, interesting <laughs> I don't know I don't know who wrote my Wikipedia page but there's some wrong facts on there it's not right I, um, I've got IMDB credits for stuff I definitely didn't do either so I don't know. Um, no, so I didn't play. And then when I moved to Newcastle a few years ago, because my husband's from there, I found a club and joined up and I've been playing for ever since. So probably for about four or five years again. And it is the best thing ever. I love it so much. I actually cried when I first walked into the hockey centre there and saw the turf and the sprinklers watering the turf and the you know, just the sounds and the smells and the everything about it because it had been an enormous part of my life. Like, I, you know, playing National League, you train, you know, eight times a week. It's it's huge. It's all you do. You're at the, you go to the hockey field before work, you go to work, you come back, you're at the hockey fields again. So it was – I didn't realise how much I'd been missing it until I started playing again. And um, I, will, I will play until I can no longer walk, I reckon. What sort of uh, player were you? Like, you know, if you had to describe your characteristics as a player, what were they? Uh, <laughs> I was an aggressive um, attacker who always choked when it really mattered. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> 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 I was. I was so shithouse at scoring goals. It was embarrassing. And that is like your one job as a striker is to score goals. And I would like, I would be able to get the ball like into the circle because you can only shoot from inside the circle. And then I I would just flub it. Like I'm still embarrassed thinking about things I did. Like I still have flashbacks of games where it was like, you know, like open net, no goalie, and I would somehow manage <laughs> somehow manage to fuck it up. Um and what's and what's really weird about that is since I started playing club hockey in Newcastle mm. just for fun, I can score. Right. Like and I don't know what that is. If it's just like that pressure's off myself, I'm like I'm just here to enjoy it now and I don't get, you know, white line fever. Like I just I get in the circle and I just go, oh, there's the box, hit the ball, put the ball in the box. Yeah, why the fuck didn't you do that before? Like, that, it's like... But when you're young also, like, you make... I think you you get in your own way so often when it comes to those things because also you're trying on big person pants and so often, you know, the pressure is not actual pressure. It's 
implied pressure. It's what you believe the pressure should be. Like, oh, I th I'm sure you had the same experience making television early on. There would all be this like, I've got to approach it in this way. This is how everybody around me approaches it. I've got to behave in a certain way. And then after a while you get a sense of, actually, this is what works better for me. It, I will be better at doing my job if I don't care so much about the result, I'll actually end up with a better result. You know, the idea of do you want to be effective or do you want to, you know, be performative in that sense. So that makes a lot of sense to me. We're getting towards the end and uh, yep. I have an 11.30 Gruen meeting in the same building you're in, so it's going to be hard for me to make an excuse to, get, <laughs> sure, to sure. run this long to get into that scene that they can just come no worries. and open the door of the cupboard that you're in and say, we've got to go to that <laughs> meeting. So um, what... Uh, <clears throat> I might tell them I'm having contractions and I'll yeah, be yes. five minutes. It's a great excuse, Will. It gets you out of anything. Uh, but uh, there are some standard questions that I like to ask on the show. And thank you so much for doing this, by the way. We could have talked for hours. This is um, this has been so fascinating. I've really enjoyed it uh, a heap. And I'm uh, really excited about the new show. I genuinely am. It's after Gruen. Like, people can uh, watch Gruen and then, like, you know, at 9.05 or so when we finish, you can then watch Rep Rehab. It's going to be a really cool Wednesday night in the ABC Hard Quiz, of course, at 8 o'clock as well. So um, big night of entertainment. You don't have to watch Two Sisters on The Bachelor. Uh, you don't have to watch people building houses on the block. They're building houses. They'll renovate the kitchen. Some people's will be good. Some people's will be bad. They'll sell them at the end. Just for 10 weeks, come and watch Gruen and Hard Quiz. And for how many weeks of re rehab are you doing? Eight how many weeks. Episodes? Eight weeks. Eight. There you go. Yep. So, uh, so the final eight weeks of Gruen will be uh, rep rehab as well. Uh, so make sure you tune in to those on the ABC. But uh, what happens, Kirsten, do you believe, when we die? Oh, nothing. Nothing. That's it. Game over. Um, maybe, maybe our consciousness exists somewhere in the universe. I'm not sure. That's very deep, Will. If nothing happens when we die, uh, it gets deeper. I'm going to dig a little oh, bit. Oh, God. So, so if nothing happens when we die. If we come from nothing and we go back to being nothing, let's just summarise that as what like a lot of people believe is yep, the case, right? Yep. We're an evolutionary accident in the corner of the universe. We came from nothing, we'll go back to being nothing and in between we're something. What is that something? Because that's the bit... Because I would say that that's what I believe. I'm giving you a quick summation probably of what I believe. Yep. But the, the stumbling block I have in that belief is this. Because if this is just an evolutionary reaction in the corner of the universe by a bunch of mammals, then why is it poetry and art and comedy and journalism and sports and love and sex? Why, why, are, why are all these things part? What, what's the meaning of life, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask you. I think the meaning of life is other people and other beings. I include animals in that. I'm not a vegetarian, but I feel like I probably should be. Um, That's a good category of <laughs> meat eaters, I think. Uh, there's like, there's vegans, there's vegetarians, there's people who aren't vegetarians but feel like they should be vegetarians. <laughs> yeah, I, I briefly, I briefly was vegetarian on our farm for like a week when I realised, like, uh, I, I remember I opened up the freezer and they'd recently killed one of our cows and they'd yep. fucking packaged the chest freezer full of all the cuts with the name of the cow on it, like. Daisy and I was like, oh, I'm not, yeah. I'm not into this. But um, I only lasted a week and then I started eating. That's it again. a real farm kid experience because we, I had that same thing. Yes. It's basically like they just 
they like an IKEA uh, shelves set. They take a cow apart and just you find all the various parts of the cow. You could reconstruct the cow basically in your own tub freezer yes. and it's all just labelled yes. for you to eat. Oh, yes. But then, but see, then I justified it to myself by thinking, then I decided it was okay to eat that cow because I knew that that cow had had a good life and had been killed okay. humanely. So that's kind of where I'm at with meat. Um, the meaning of life, though, is I think it's, other people and beings and progress. I feel like progress is an inevitable part of where we're all going in the universe, the direction this is all taking. Okay, good. So uh, then I think this is very timely because we've mentioned climate change. Obviously, we've talked about, you know, briefly, you know, the COVID situation that we're currently in, the global pandemic. How do you feel about the idea of progress at the moment? Like, are we progressing in a positive way is like, I mean, as somebody, you know, who is a mother, you know, who you, you have stakes in the next generations and the, you know, life and world expectancy of the next generations. How do you feel about that at the moment? I th- okay. So two parts, I think climate change and the environment generally are in dire straits and that really gives me massive anxiety and freaks me out. And I think we that will only turn around if we turn it around. But in other senses of progress, I think the world is a better place for my kids. And I mean, the, the, and these are all of the good new science stories that get buried about all kinds of technological advances that we've made in, um, you know, helping deaf kids, deaf kids here, people who are born blind, they'll be able to see soon. Like, um, you know, we're getting better at treating cancer. We're getting better at all kinds of things that would otherwise have condemned people to miserable, painful existence. And, you know, there's actually less violence in the world now than there ever was before. There are less people in poverty, um, you know, still too many, but things are tracking in the right direction generally on a lot of those big issues. Um, Yeah, with the big caveat that not addressing climate change will send us all backwards. (laughs) Uh, I have a magic wand. Oh, good, use it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why have you just been sitting magic, on that? <laughs> I have a magic wand. Uh, unfortunately, one of the uh, terms and conditions of the magic wand is that it can only be used to grant somebody one specific personal wish. And the specific personal wish is that you can have any skill in the world. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You just immediately have this skill. But it has to be a personal skill. You can use it altruistically if you want to, but it has to be something that... But it is perfectly fine also if you want it to be selfishly. But I can tap you on the shoulder and you can cut, and you can just suddenly have any skill in the world. What skill would you like? Um, I wish I could sing. I can't... I what can't, sort of singing would you like to sing? Or just general singing? Just general, like, sing in tune singing. Like, hit a note mm. at least once singing because I can't sing to save myself. And it's actually... Um, it's the most stressful thing I find about um, some of the TV work I've done is when people write me into things which require me to sing. I hate it so much. And Zoe Norton Lodge, she I will still never forgive her for this, she wrote a sketch for the checkout where I had to dress up like Shirley Temple in fucking white 
ballerina tights and a tutu and like a little like curly hair and sing and dance the Australian consumer law on a stage. And it was... <laughs> It was, to this day, the most mortifying thing I've ever had to do, and it was on camera. Um, And, (laughs) yeah, I'm very, very, very self-conscious about singing. So I'm going to say singing. Uh, I we didn't get to talk as much as I would have liked about the checkout, but often people ask me about doing Gruen. It's a question that I get a lot. Is like, yeah, we've been doing it. This is our twelfth year now, and they say, does does it make you a you know, a more active consumer of advertising. Like, you know, are you making better consumer choices because you are doing this show? And I think the honest answer is probably slightly, but not really. You know, this like often understanding why things work doesn't actually prevent them from working on you. What's were you? Are you a more active consumer having done the checker? I um I I think basically the same thing. Like I still fall for marketing tricks. As I'm falling for them, I'm like, I know how this is working. I'm. S- <laughs> I'm still going to buy this rug that Instagram just served me an ad for because it knows every it knows me better than I know myself but so I still fall for that I would say I'm a more empowered consumer though so if the, if if things go wrong with a product or a service I feel much more able to um advocate for myself um in getting my money back or rectifying it somehow and I like to do it for other people too it gives me a real. It gives me a real thrill to like beat the man. Oh, does it? Yeah. On behalf of other people. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I, yeah, I can understand that. I think that's kind of cool. Acting on behalf of others. Yes. Like you, you have a license to dial up your vengeance twenty five percent as well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like being someone's agent. You know. Uh, all right. Uh, final question. And uh, I have a time machine. Again, uh, it's got very specific terms and conditions, and these are the terms and conditions of my time machine. You get one round trip. It has to be a round trip. Can't stay anywhere. You have to come back. I need the machine for the next person who comes on the podcast. Uh, you can go forward or backwards in time. You do not have to do something for the sake of humanity. We're going to send somebody appropriate back to deal with Hitler. You know, someone with the skill sets to deal with Hitler will go back to deal with Hitler. This is just for you. You can go to a point in your own life and observe it or change it, but you can just go to a point in history or time, forward or backwards. I don't really mind, but it has to be a round trip. Where would you go? Um, I was I was going to say I'd go back to that day at 7.30 and say, nah, let's not. Let's not do that sketch. <laughs> but no, no, no. If I had to, no, that no, I wouldn't take that back because that was actually a really good learning experience for me, even though it was horrible. I would go back to um, late 1950s, early 1960s Zimbabwe, which was then Rhodesia, but we don't call it that, um, where my grandfather, he was uh, like a, a, a pioneering conservationist and he was rescuing a whole bunch of animals from the rising floodwaters of a lake in a thing called Operation Noah. And um, I've I've only ever known him through footage of that time and it just looks like the most amazing, epic um, effort ever and I just wish, wish, wish I could have been there to see it. Like, like capturing, like darting rhinos and putting them onto rafts and ferrying them across the water to the mainland and lions in cages and pulling monkeys out of trees and... Um, uh, you know, it put impalas in nets and it literally was like Noah's Ark except there was much more than two of every animal that they had to move and um, it it just looked so epic and I would love to have met him 
and to have seen that. Great answer. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, people can watch Rep Rehab on the ABC. Uh, you wrote a book, right? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> it's called... <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's called I Built No Schools in Kenya, and it is about the very, very bizarre year that I spent working as a live-in dementia carer for an old colonial man and his somewhat deranged family who were all accusing each other of murder and spying, and I got caught up in it all. It's, it's a strange story. It's a true story. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks, Will. 